Welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is a true icon of music all around the world. He is a two-time ent entrant into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with the Hollies and Crosby, Stills, Nash. He's a two-time entrant into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. And as much as anyone who's ever lived for the past six decades has crafted what is truly the soundtrack of all of our lives. It is an amazing treat to have with us Graham Nash. Thank you for doing this, Graham. You're very welcome. How are you today? We're doing great. It's a real thrill to talk to you. So it's a very special day for us. And for, me, and for me, I've been a fan forever. Thank you. So Graham, I, I, there are so many places to begin, but I'd love to go back to the beginning and go back to Blackpool and to Salford, where you grew up. Blackpool in particular, I think it's been a symbol for many years now of the tougher times. And I find uh, there's a certain grit that comes from people from that part of England. So I wonder if we could start by getting some of your reflections on early days and growing up in post-World War II Europe in Blackpool and in Salford. My family came from Salford, which is a suburb of Manchester. The pregnant ladies were evacuated out of town because of the German bombers. And so I was born in Blackpool, but I, I think I only spent maybe a week there. And then my mother and myself were, you know, sent back to Salford. Uh, I was born in 1942 and World War II didn't end until 1945. So I had three years of, 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 of war experiences. My earliest memory is of me in my pram uh, attempting to read a comic book but that was upside down and seeing my mother uh, pull the, uh, the, the, the curtains for a blackout. What you had to do is you had to not give the German bombers anywhere to aim. So you had to, you had to uh, have blackout curtains, which were very heavy, very dark curtains that wouldn't let any light out. Um, rationing, uh, hard to get food, hard to get uh, coal for the fire. Uh, we lived in a very small house. It was, it was uh, called a two up, two down, meaning two, two small rooms upstairs and two small rooms downstairs. And there were like 30 of them in a row. And there were many, many rows of these kind of houses probably built for the, uh, for the Irish laborers who came uh, to the north of England uh, uh, to try and uh, find work, et cetera. Uh, but life was, was tough. Of course, um, I didn't realize until I was much older that Salford was reputedly one of the worst slum areas in the United Kingdom. I didn't know that. I didn't know we were poor. We were the same as everybody else on the street. So, you know, yeah, life was tough in, in, in post-World War II, uh, north of England. Mm. And somewhere along the line, you meet Alan Clark. Was that in school and that same time frame? Yes. 
Alan Clark and I have been friends for 74 years. I'm now 80, and so is Alan. And we met at school when we were six years old. And for some reason, we started singing harmony in, 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 the, in the school choir. We'd do the Lord's Prayer in harmony, and Alan always took the, the melody. And, and so because he always took the melody, I, I obviously took the harmony. And that's, <laughs> that's been the way it, uh, it's been uh, all this time. Right now, I'm in, I think, nine complete tracks of a Alan Clark solo album that I've been helping, I've been singing on. So I'm singing on the entire album. And it gives me great pleasure to sing with Alan again, and it it, it gives me uh, great honor to be to be still a part of his life all these years later. Amazing, uh, seventy four years that is that is something. So give or take nineteen sixty four, uh, the Hollies come into existence and have an incredible run. You were very young, Alan, Tony, everybody in the band was very young. That must be incredible reflecting on those early days with the Holly. Yeah, it was, and I do that a little more these days. Um, we had, Alan and I started the Hollies in December of 1962. Wow. And uh, we were four or five kids from the north of England that had escaped having to do what their father did and having to do what their grandfather did and great-grandfather did. There were two main jobs in, in, in Salford. You either went to, down the mine to dig coal or you went into the mill to make cloth. And those were the two uh, best jobs. Um, and uh, I never had either of them. I had a passion for uh, American rock and roll that I had when I was starting, uh, when I was 13 years old. And my mother and father uh, recognized my passion for this new kind of music. And instead of, you know, telling me to get a real job, uh, they actually encouraged my passion in music. And that's one of the reasons why you and I are speaking today. That's fantastic. And you, you know, were part of a movement. You talked about the American rock and roll. I guess that's acts like Buddy Holly. And I imagine um, having had the opportunity to speak to some of your contemporaries over the time on Great Minds, a lot of the American blues artists too, I would think. Yeah. Those were uh, brought to us uh, by, um, you know, cousins and uncles and brothers who were in the merchant navy. And they would go to America on some kind of military exchange and they would bring back records of the new music. And it was rhythm and blues and it was Benny Spellman and it was the coasters and it was, you know, all those great rhythm and blues uh, uh, records. And that's how we learned them. And what we were amazed to find is that we could sing those songs with this, I guess, mid-Atlantic accent and sold it back to the Americans. And that was amazing to us that, that 
the British invasion happened because even the Beatles uh, did a lot of, of covers of rhythm and blues uh, on their early albums. Yeah, it, it's an era gone by now, but I'm guessing that the Hollies were on a lot of those great package tours. You know, everybody would do a short set, you do a lot right. of shows in a short period of time. Right. Is that right? Yes, we 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 played uh, with with the Dave Plot Five. We played with the Rolling Stones. We played with the Kinks. We played with a lot of a lot of those kind of packaging shows. We did one with Jerry Marsden, who was Jerry and the Pacemakers, of course. It was a Christmas show, and the show opened with this. Do you know what a, a Christmas cracker is? Tell me. Well, it's a, a small thing that with two with two uh, two ends, and you would pull it with somebody and whoever got the paper hat inside was the winner you know uh silly things silly things like that you know because there was not a lot of things to do for a 15 year old kid after world war ii and when skiffle came along and showed us how to make music simply and cheaply uh we began to start joining bands that look, look, look what happened <laughs> that, that that was all we could do is, is 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 you know we had a ball to kick around you know but what else could 15 year old kids do after world war ii skiffle came along lonnie donegan turned us on to to skiffle music that he had brought back from america and we were off and running because you could uh, it was cheap if you had a cheap acoustic guitar and a washboard which is what your grandmother used to where you know use to do the laundry you would put metal thimbles on your fingers and you know that kind of sound that those were the drums and a, a tea chest bass which was basically a mop stick um, with a piece of string on it tried uh, you know tried to it uh, tied to it a, a tea chest a small uh, cardboard box so it, we could make music and that's what we did and you mentioned Lonnie Donegan, a seminal name in history in Skiffle. Could you talk, Graham, a little bit more about Lonnie? Because he was such a towering figure in the time, largely lost in history, but an incredibly important figure in the development of everything that we listen to right up until today. I'll go up on the mountaintop and plant me a patch of cane. I'll make me a jug of molasses for the sweet and lies of Jane. I'll go up on the mountaintop, put up my moonshine still. I'll make a jug of molasses for just one dollar bill. Every every band owes homage to to Lonnie Donegan. I mean, he showed us a way to make music that we could actually do. He didn't make music with a forty piece orchestra and and twenty thousand musicians. He was just in a skiffle group with you know an acoustic guitar and bass and 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 another instrument, you know, whether it be piano or another guitar. So Lonnie Donegan was incredibly important, not only to the Hollies but to, to the Beatles also, and to every band that came up there. We all loved Buddy, uh, uh, Lonnie Donegan, and we all loved Buddy Holly too. As a matter of fact, that album I was just telling you about that I'm doing with Alan Clark, I wrote a song called Buddy's Back about the Hollies' love for Buddy Holly. That is fantastic. Many, many years ago, we went and saw a show on the West End, a musical about the life of Buddy Holly that was really well done. And it ran in the UK for years, did not do well here. Interesting that so many of our icons 
seem to be embraced more warmly in your country than mine, where they all came from. Absolutely. Buddy Holly, the Everly Brothers, Bill Haley, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, they were all very, very well known in, in, in England, uh, particularly. And yeah, so uh, maybe we could just recognize genius when we heard it more than you guys. I think I think you did. I think that's very well said. Now, somewhere along the line, you also mentioned very popular. Everybody was doing covers, but you very early uh, started to write your own stuff and encouraged Alan, encouraged the other members of the band. Where yeah. do you think that that creativity came from? Did it come from your parents? That is it just no, something that is it from was very no? It was very simple. We realized that when you put out a single. And you have the A side, which is, you know, what most people listen to. There's also a B side that makes just as much money as the A side when you sell a record. And we began to realize that if we started to write our own songs, at least we can get them on the B sides and we can start making a little extra money. And we always tried, of course, to, to write the A side. Uh, and when we didn't do that until, my God, what was it, late 65 when we did We're Through? a record that, uh, that Alan and Tony and, and myself wrote. But yeah, that's what we would do. And that's what that's why we started to write songs because you could make more money if you put your songs on the B-side. Fantastic. Uh, and incredible songs. The Hollies catalog, uh, you know, stands at the very top of all music that's ever been created across any genre. Well, you know, don't go too far now. No, it really does. I still listen to it all the time today. When we were at school, our games were simple. I played a janitor, you played a monitor. Then you played with older boys and prefects. What's the attraction in what they're doing? Hey, Carrie what's your game that can anybody play? And I guess it was on a Hollies tour, give or take 1966, where you first met David Crosby and Stephen Stills. I met them at different times. I've always credited Cass Elliott, who was our dear friend, uh, with the idea of what me and David and Stephen would sound like if we sang together. Obviously, David had been thrown out of the birds. Uh, uh, Stephen, uh, uh, you know, was in the Buffalo Springfield and they were, they, they were broken up. And so David and Stephen were trying to do a, a duo kind of thing, like, like the Everly Brothers, you know. Um, and one night I, 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 I left London uh, for four days to fly to Los Angeles and spend uh, some time with my new girlfriend, Joni Mitchell. When I got to the house, there were other voices in there. Didn't make me happy. I wanted to be with Joan. But it was David and Stephen, and they were having dinner with Joni. And then after, after dinner, uh, David said to Stephen, hey, play Willie that song that we just was rehearsing. So don't forget, they're trying to make a, they're trying to be a, a, the Everly Brothers, you know, something like the Everly Brothers, two-part harmony. So they sang this song, and it was a song called You Don't Have to Cry, which Stephen wrote for the first Crosby, Stills and Nash record. They got to the end of the song, and I said, well, first of all, Stephen, that's a brilliant song. That's 
That's fantastic. And secondly, uh, sing it again. So they looked at each other and they shrugged and they sang it again. When it got to the end, I said, okay, I am rather good at what I do. I'm a harmony singer. I, in the second time that they sang it, I was watching David's body language. I was watching where Stephen started a phrase and ended a phrase and how long he kept a note going. And I said to them at the end of the second time they sang it, I said, do me a favor. I'm not crazy. Please sing it one more time. They started the third version of it. After 45 seconds, when I had added my voice to that duo, my life changed completely and so did uh, David's life and so did Stephen's life. We realize, I mean, don't forget that the Hollies and the Springfield and the Birds were pretty decent harmony bands, but this was something very different. We were trying to make our three voices sound like one voice and we created a sound and there's no doubt about it. I go back and listen to the first Crosby, Stills and Nash record and there was nothing out there that sounded anything like that. In the morning, when you rise, do you think of me and how you left me crying? Are you thinking of telephones and managers and where you got to be at noon? You are And that's, that's how we started. Me trying to spend some time with Joni and seeing David and Stephen. I had met David earlier when the birds came to London and they were being shown around as the American Beatles. Well, that pissed off thousands of English musicians. And he came, I, I, I called him, I said, look, I understand that you're getting trashed in the media. I understand that. You're staying at, he was staying at a hotel called the White House, strangely enough. And I said, get out of the hotel and come and stay with me in my apartment. And he did. And so I became friends with, with David. I get to America. And, and, and I think late 67, early 68, um, David says, uh, you know, Peter, Peter, Peter Talk, who is one of the monkeys uh, who, whose house Stephen uh, later bought, um, is throwing a party and would you like to go? Because I want you to, to meet somebody. I said, sure, why not? So we go up to this house on Mulholland here in Los Angeles. We open the front door and this incredible cloud of smoke comes out. And I hear this person playing the piano but playing the piano with incredible intensity and passion and groove. And I, I looked at David, I said, wow, look at that guy. He said, yeah, that's who I want you to meet. That's Stephen Stills. Wow, what a story. You, you mentioned Cass Elliott, and I guess that was a very magical time in a place called Laurel Canyon. Um, there's some great films that have been made in recent years. I think Jacob Dylan did one in particular. Um, but can you talk a little bit 
about Cass Elliot, who was a seminal figure in music as well and culture, and that special moment in time in Laurel Canyon. Laurel Canyon was very interesting there. You got to understand that I came from I came from England, where you know, if you blink, you miss summer, you know. Um, and I came to Laurel Canyon, and it was sunny every single day, and there was pretty women all over the place wearing very little. There was incredible music being made by people that lived in the canyon. And we would go to each other's house and say, hey, listen to this that we just did. And we'd sing Sweet Judy Blue Eyes with one guitar and three voices and kill them. It's getting to the point where I'm no fun anymore. I am sorry. Sometimes it hurts so badly I must cry out loud. I am lonely. I am yours. You are mine. You are what you are. We were good. Crosby, Stills and Nash could really sing. And, and so Laurel Canyon was this haven of music and sunshine and freedom that I will never forget. Incredibly uh, poignant part of cultural history and not just you, but so many other great musicians also. Yeah. You know, all of the lads that later became the Eagles, you know, uh, Jackson, of course, uh, David Blue. Uh, I, there were a, a lot of people that lived in the canyon and there was music every single day. And you could, drive, you could drive down the canyon and you could hear houses that had musicians in it because they would be jamming and, and writing. And it was like that all day. And we couldn't wait to show people what the latest thing that we had done, the latest song that we had written. You know, we played them Guinevere. They, they fell over, you know, they, they never heard. I mean, you know, quite frankly, David and I have a great a great blend, you know, we know how to sing. And uh, we would continually uh, take what we had learned at rehearsals and go to people's houses and play it for them because we knew that they would love it. We knew, we knew we were good. We had the songs, we had the voices, we knew. Yeah, no, you, you, you sure did. And, and still today, you also got politically active as a very young, artist. Um, and I was listening this morning off Graham Nash Live, your latest record, uh, Military Madness, which was written long ago around the time of the Vietnam War, uh, as resonant today. Can you talk about how California and that atmosphere and, you know, political consciousness for you, I want to talk about what you did in 79 with no nukes also, but it seems like it really crystallized for you in California during that early period of your life. It did. And here's why. 
when I was in the Hollies, I had learned how to write a tune that you couldn't forget if you heard it two or three times. But the words left a lot to be desired. Moon, June, screw me in the back of the car kind of lyrics. When I got to America and I realized what David and Stephen and Neil and Johnny were writing about, I realized that if I put better words to the melodies that I had learned to write, I would have pretty decent songs. And that's what happened. Fantastic. 69, I think I read somewhere that it was only the second live performance that you ever did when Neil Young joined the band. And Woodstock, obviously a hugely important cultural moment. Do you remember what that was like on the stage at Woodstock with David, Stephen, Neil, and yourself? Sure. We knew that this was going to be an interesting show. We had heard in the preceding days, well, there's going to be 25,000 people there. Hey, there's going to be 50,000 people there. Hey, you know, it just changed today. It's going to be 100. And by the time we got to the end, there were probably close to 400, 500,000 people there. Now then, you try playing Guinevere with one acoustic guitar and two voices to 500,000 people. It was an amazing time. And we, we wanted to reach the very last row of people, you know? And we went on, it was late at night, uh, fortunately dark, of course. Uh, and, and so we were under great lights. The sound system left a lot to be desired. It wasn't, wasn't great, uh, but I have, I, I, and quite frankly, I, I've never seen the complete movie of Woodstock. I, I've checked out our part, of course, you know, and uh, I thought we did pretty good considering. I thought we sang in, you know, in tune and with passion. And uh, I thought we had a great time at Woodstock. And there's a good reason why uh, we have been so associated with it all these years, because they recognized that, the, that, that this new band, Crosby, Stills and Nash, were, were, were going to be very, very interesting. And in fact, we were at some point called the, the world's first super group. Now then, who, who cares? But we were good. And Neil was in the band for a relatively short period of time, but go back to the beginning when Neil joined you guys for, I guess it was about under two years initially. Yeah. And quite frankly, I wasn't happy about Neil joining. We had created this wonderful harmony this three-part harmony. And why did we want to now change? Four-part harmony is much more difficult than three-part harmony. David and Stephen had been at dinner in New York with Ahmet Erdogan, who was our dear friend, who was the owner and chief of uh, Atlantic Records. And during, here's what happened. On the first Crosby, Stills and Nash record, Stephen played most of the instruments. Of course, David and I played our rhythm guitar on, on Guinevere and, 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 you know, Lady of the Island, right? But Stephen played lead guitar, rhythm guitar, bass guitar, piano, B3 and percussion. Because he was a genius at making records and we let him. When we got to the end of it and we realized that we would have to go on tour, 
how are we going to deal with this with, when one of the members was the one that did most of the instruments? So we knew that we had to get someone. So let me go back to this dinner with Ahmed Erdogan. Halfway through dinner, Ahmed says to David, hey man, I know who you should get, man. And so David and Stephen said, you do, Ahmed? Yes, man, I know exactly who you should get. And David and Stephen said, okay, who? And Ahmed said, you gotta get Neil back. Hey man, I just gotta say that you people have gotta be the strongest bunch of people I ever saw. <laughs> three days, man, three days. We just love you, we just love you. Tell them who we are. <laughs> Hello, Tess, 4965, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome with us Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. It's getting to the point where I'm no fun anymore. I'm sorry. So badly I must cry out loud I'm lonely I am yours You are mine You are what you are You make it hard A little less bottom end on you Stephen said, wait a second I spent the last couple of years dealing with this man Turning up, not turning up In the band, not in the band doing, you know, the Ed Sullivan show, not doing the Ed Sullivan show. And I said, with all due respect, you know, I understand that Neil is a great writer and I, I personally love his voice too. I said, but I've never met this guy. I, I don't know whether I could be friends. I don't know whether I could tell him secrets. I, I, I don't know him. I, 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 before we invite him into this band and into this sound that we had created, I need to meet him. I had breakfast with Neil in uh, Greenwich Village in New York City. And uh, there was no doubt after that breakfast that he would be in the band. One of the last questions I asked him, I looked him right in the eye and I said, hey, Neil, why the fuck should we invite you into this band? And he looked at me and he said, have you ever heard me and Stephen play guitar together? That's why you need me in this band member of the band from that moment and the very first Crosby, Stills and Nash concert was seven years later in Houston in 1977. We had never played, Crosby, Stills and Nash had never played in front of people. Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young had never played in front of people and Woodstock was the second time that we ever played in front of live people. Incredible. And some of those early songs, Graham, uh, Marrakesh Express, and Teach Your Children, were those originally songs that you had put forth for the Hollies? Only one of them, Marrakesh Express. Looking at the world through the sunset in your eyes, traveling the train to clear 
the skies. Ducks and pigs and chickens call. Animal carpet wall to wall. American ladies five foot tall. Sweeping cobwebs from the edges of my mind. Had to get away to see what we could find. Hope the days at my head bring us back to where they've led. Listen not to what's been said to you. Don't you know we're riding on the Marrakesh Express? Don't you know we're riding on the Marrakesh Express? They're taking me to Marrakesh all on board the train. All on board the train. A year, a year or so earlier, I'd written a song called King Midas in Reverse. Uh, I loved the song. I thought we made a very decent record of it. But instead of zooming up into the top five, like most Holly singles did, it kind of meandered its way around to the top 30, the bottom of the top 30. And after that, they didn't trust me anymore, musically. In the bowels of EMI, Abbey Road in London, there is a tape of the Hollies doing the backing track to Marrakesh Express. Trust me, you don't want to hear it. Mm. So yeah, I had already written uh, Marrakesh Express and, and uh, tried to get the Hollies to do it. Uh, but I didn't, I, and I'd started teaching children, but I, I didn't finish it until uh, till after the first record. And that's why it was on Deja Vu. Gotcha, gotcha. Um... Can we talk about um, Musicians United for Safe Energy and uh, what you did there uh, for No Nukes um, and really not the start of, I know very active going back to Vietnam, going back to the trial of the Chicago Eight, but that political activism seemed to really crescendo uh, in 1979 with No Nukes. Yeah. Um, I was staying at the Chateau Marmont, which is a hotel in, in Los Angeles, in Hollywood. And a bunch of us were having dinner with Jacques Cousteau. And I looked at uh, Jacques and I said, hey, Jacques, what, what is the biggest problem facing humanity? Now, I'm expecting a fish answer. I'm expecting whales. I'm expecting, you know, environmental change in the oceans because it's Jacques Cousteau, right? He looked at me and he said, I fear about the nuclear police. And I said, I, I, I'm sorry, what? He goes, yeah, I think in, in, in the future, police will be able to come to your door and search your house or your apartment uh, and try and find, um, you know, nuclear material. And then he explained to me the snake of the nuclear power industry. At one end of the snake is all the miners dying from the radon poisoning, from digging up the uranium. Halfway down the snake is what do we do with all this toxic poisonous stuff that we are creating? And at the bottom end of the snake is, is the towns and cities that would not allow nuclear uh, trucks filled with nuclear waste to go through their state. 
Jackson and Bonnie and uh, James Taylor had an idea to, uh, to do a concert because a couple of them were at that dinner with Jacques Cousteau. So mainly it was Dave, it was, uh, it was uh, uh, Bonnie and, and, and uh, James and, uh, and Jackson, but they asked me uh, if, I would, if I would help. And so I did. And so it became five nights at Madison Square Gardens here in New York City. Uh, me and David and Stephen had not been talking for about a year for some reason and can't even remember. And they knew that we had headliners for four of the nights, but not the last night. And would I call David and Stephen and ask them to come and join us? Knowing full well that we, were, we weren't on speaking terms there, me and David and Stephen. Mm. I looked at the problem and I realized that they were totally right. And that if Crosby, Stills and Nash could come together, they would be the headlines for the last show. And that, that's what happened. Amazing. Let's digress from just sort of, or, you know, going through the, the Graham Nash, you know, through the decades and just talk a little bit about the world today. Graham, you have the benefit of real perspective uh, going back to early days, as we talked about in the North of England and always been politically active, really accelerated by the time he spent in Laurel Canyon. But it seems like a song like Military Madness is as relevant today uh, and the lyrics is relevant today. Do you have hope, Graham, looking around the world? No. Uh, you're still out there, you know, fighting the good fight, going on tour, bringing your music to the public. But what's your take on where we are now? And seems like we have not learned our lessons over and over again. Correct. I believe that I'm witnessing the end of the American empire. There have been many, many empires throughout history, of course the Scythians, the Greeks, the Egyptians, the Russians, the British. Even Alexander the Great couldn't conquer Afghanistan. Um, and you're right, we have not learned from history. We should, but we have not. And a bunch of my songs that I wrote over 50 years ago are, as you say, still very relevant today. Chicago and We Can Change the World, Military Madness, of course, Immigration Man, Field Worker, all those songs, you know, O Camille, all those songs are incredibly relevant today. And it's both disturbing and joyful at the same time. Disturbing because we haven't learned from history and joyful because my music seems to have lasted, you know, 50 odd years. How do you find the optimism today? I know I struggle. I worry about uh, the fractured state of our country here, um, our inability to serve as we have for many, many years as the world's moral compass. And I, I struggle these days finding the optimism. How do you find it, Graham? I'm not happy about the state of the world right now. I have seen the rise of the right wing I have seen the rise of, of people that, that want more guns than is necessary. I've seen the rise of people that are against their leaders. I've seen 
I, I, I'm not happy about the way that America is. I'm not happy around about the way that it's going around the world. And once again, I think I'm seeing the end of the empire. Mm. Well, I, you know, I, I can't argue with you. And, and I spent a lot of time back in your native land in the UK. It's not going great guns over there either. No, particularly with Boris Johnson. Yeah, no, he's I mean, he, uh, he just survived that. No, no, no confidence vote. But uh, I think politically he's in he's in trouble. Yeah, no, I, I, I you know, the, the truth is, I mean, the world is full of people. What are there now? Seven billion people of us. How can you possibly, uh, you know, take charge of that chaos? There's 300 million people in America alone. How can you be the president? How can you deal with that many people? And one of the problems is online. The social media have given everybody a voice. But unfortunately, the social media has given everybody a voice. And the craziest people are out there spreading misinformation and disinformation. And uh, it's, it's a sad state of affairs. And music has played such an important role in calling a lot of that out with uh, a level of candor you won't see anywhere else. Sometimes it inspires us. Sometimes it reminds us of things that we'd rather not be reminded of, but that are important. Um, when you talk with other musicians, other friends and colleagues of yours, um, I just saw that Springsteen announced that he's going out and doing a big tour of Europe next year. And he's one of the artists who I always look to for inspiration and to sort of call things as they are. What is the mood amongst your, your colleagues, you know, be it around writing songs or on stage? And, you know, is that end of the American empire? And you may very well be right. What do what your friends and colleagues in the music world say about it? Because I know that's areas that you all talk about. They're very disturbed about it. They understand that, you know, we, at one point we thought that it couldn't get any worse than Nixon. And yet Trump is way worse than Richard Nixon ever was. And we are musicians. We like to play for people. We like to write songs. And the first thing you've got to do when you write a song is play it for your partner, make sure it's cool. And then what you need to do is, is play it for people. And that means touring. And that's, you know, I still believe that music can provide great solace for the soul. Uh, it's, it's a great way to, uh, to find out about, about, about things that are going on in the world. It's a great way to, to relax and to, to get rid of stress. I, I love being a musician, but that's what we do. We're musicians first. And, um, you know, we wake up every morning and we deal with our lives and we write about our lives and that's what's going on. Yeah, yeah. Are you excited to be going back out on the road? Absolutely. I wouldn't go if I wasn't. Oh, that's fantastic. And you're going to be a couple shows in New York in July. I believe so. Yes. Great. So it's, I think the tour starts July 8. Great. No, very, very excited. Okay. Let's talk about photography. That is also a very big part of your DNA. I know the interest started when you were young, that the Graham Nash photography story is an incredible story, not only of the imagery, but also 
the technology part, which I, I, I will tell you, I did not know that much about. And I was blown away by that whole story. Yeah. Um, yeah. What happened is this, basically. With the first uh, Apple computers, you could, and it was crude, but you, you could bring up images and you could put images in there and you could manipulate them. But you couldn't get them off the screen. I tried making wax paper stuff. I tried printing. I, I couldn't get anything off the screen that satisfied me. A friend of mine, Charles Wurenberg, said, hey, have you ever heard of the Fuji printer? And I said, no, what, what is that? He said, oh, you should check it out. So I got in touch with the man, John Bellotta, who now works for me and has worked at Nash Editions for the last 30 years, uh, showed me a, a, a printer that they used. It was called the Iris 3047. It looked like a washing machine. It had a, a top that you lifted and a, a drum that you would fix the paper to that spun at an incredible speed. The ink was sprayed onto there and lo and behold, in 20 minutes, a photograph appeared. It wasn't a photograph, of course, it was an inkjet print. I was having dinner at my house in, in, in Encino in, in, in Los Angeles with a man called uh, David Coons. David Coons worked for Disney and he had been working uh, on, on printing. I told him the story of what happened to my first three years of shooting in the United States. I had them all in a box. And a friend of mine, Gary Burden, said he was going to do a, a, a show on, on Joni and could he use some of my images that I obviously shot whilst living with Joan. I never saw my negatives again. He said that he put them on a Greyhound bus down to Los Angeles and, oh, you didn't get them? I never saw them again. I'm telling David Coons this story and he said, uh, but I did, I did have my proof sheets. You know, and I, I don't know whether you know much about photography, but a proof sheet, you know, if it's got 24 images on him, they're each, you know, an image and a quarter square kind of thing, you know, that they're, they're just small thumbnail sketches of what your negatives would have provided. He said, do you have a favorite image here? And I said, yeah, I, I like this one of Crosby. It was a, a, a shot of, of him that I took when we were rehearsing in Sag Harbor in 68. He said, can I take it? And I said, oh, man, am I going to lose my proof sheets now as well as my negatives? He said, no, 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 just give me that one. So I, I, I gave him the proof sheet. Three days later, he came back with a 24-inch by 30-inch portrait of David Crosby that knocked me on my ass. And I said, David, I, I didn't know that you had a dark room that big. He said, it's not a photograph. And I said, of course it's a photograph. I took it. I know what it is. He goes, no, it's an inkjet print. And that was the first time I'd ever heard that, that word or those three words. I realized that 
that was the way I could get all my images off the computer, which we talked about earlier. The Iris 3047 was $124,000. I was lucky enough to be able to buy it immediately. And I turned up, I, I, I tore up the, uh, the, uh, the warranty within the first 10 minutes of me having the machine. Because I saw what it did. And I knew that this digital world was coming at us and we either get on the train or we get run over. I decided that I would not only get on the train, but make the train. Nash Editions was started in late 1989 and exists to this day, and we still make the best digital prints ever. And I go, when I go on tour, I do go to galleries and I go and check in the corner where I carry a loop with me, which is a small magnifying glass, of course. And I go to the corner and I see if there's one pixel that is out of register. And even if it's one pixel, which may not sound like a lot to you, but visually, I can tell that it's out. And we don't do that. We are making great prints even today. The first, my first printer, the, the Iris 3047 I told you about, is yeah. now in the Smithsonian American Museum in Washington, D.C. And I have a medal from the Smithsonian for uh, inventing this, this, this new technique of, of printing uh, photographs. Incredible. Grammier, the whole sensory package. You've changed our lives with your music for our ears and with your images for our eyes. It, it, it's absolutely uh, uh, remarkable. And don't forget, I've been a photographer longer than I've been a musician. What, what, a, what a story, what a life. So, Graham, I love that um, today we get to hear things that we might not ever have heard. We had a chance to talk to Giles Martin, who I'm sure you know. And, I do. And, and I don't he, know him personally, but I certainly know who he is because his father, his father was a genius. Exactly. And at Abbey Road, they continue to unearth jewels and allow us to hear things that we thought we'd never hear. Right. In, in 2018, Rhino did an incredible two box set of your music over the years with a lot of your demos going back to 68, you know, uh -huh. and forward. That must have been a really exciting project for you. It was because it shows people just how, how, how simple music can be and what you can turn it into. I'll light the fire. You place the flowers in you born today staring at the fire for hours and hours while I listen to you play your love songs all night long for me only for After I'd finished Teach Your Children, I wanted to sing it for David and Stephen. So there's Stephen and he's watching me. I play him the song, get to the end. He says to me, that's a wonderful song, Graham. 
don't ever play it like that again. I said, what? He goes, uh-uh, this is how teacher children should sound. And he gave it that beautiful Stephen Stills, right hand uh, picking, plucking uh, sound that he makes that he's famous for. And that's how, uh, that, he turned teacher children into a hit. I, you know, I was sounding a little like Henry VIII, he said. stuff when you get to hear those demos yeah and so uh, when you when you can hear the demo of teacher children and then listen to the record you can see the incredible amount of work that was done when he got to the the solo Stephen quite wisely said you know I've, I've done a lot of solos on this record you know what else can we do here David said hey Garcia's in the studio next door and he's just started to learn to play pedal steel maybe he'd be interested so we made a quick two track of, of the song. And I said to David, go into the studio with Garcia and play it for him. And if he wants to, if, if he likes it enough to want to play on it, maybe he could bring his pedal steel in and we could do it. Garcia loved the song. He brought his pedal steel into our studio. He played the first take. I said, unbelievable, Jerry, that's just beautiful. Thank you very much. Garcia says, you know, I kind of screwed up a couple of places. Can I do a second take? I said, of course you can, but I'm never going to use it. I love the spontaneity and the joy that you brought when you put your first track on of pedal steel. We did repair the, the couple of things that, that, that disturbed Jerry, uh, but I think he was delighted with the end result. And I think that between Stephen Stills and Jerry Garcia, they made Teacher Children into a worldwide hit. What, what a great, great story. So can I ask you just a couple of sort of fan questions? Sure. So when you're listening to music, uh, who, who's on your playlist these days? And if you were, what is that, uh, that Desert Island disc, I guess, if you were gonna take some music, uh, and that was all you could take, what would you bring? Well, you know, I'd, I'd bring Sergeant Pepper, I'd bring Pet Sounds, I'd bring uh, Soul by Peter Gabriel. I'd, I, you know, there's a lot of good stuff. But here's what's happening to me musically and internally. We have recorded so much stuff since 1968. And 
I've been dealing with that, putting out archives, putting out demos, putting out box sets. Uh, and, and, and so I, I, I do know that good music will find me. For instance, that Childish Gambino song, you know, This Is America, what a beautiful song and what a great video. So I know that good music will find me. But quite frankly, my mind is full of Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young music right now. And I'm not listening to anybody else's music. I want to just concentrate on ours for right now. What a great answer. And you've toured all over the world, Graham. Is there a particular place or a venue that holds a special place in your heart? The Royal Albert Hall, Red Rocks in Colorado. Great. The village, the village Gate in New York, which is where CSNY first uh, played together and rehearsed. It's a, a kind of a jazz club in, that was uh, available for us to be able to spend two or three days rehearsing. Uh, but th those, are, those are three that I can think of immediately. Great, great, great answer. Uh, and I want to talk about uh, Graham Nash Live, but I'd be remiss not to ask, all four of you are still around and in great form, uh, either as three, the original three, or as a four, do you think we'll see any combination uh, of you guys on stage together again? Is there a no nukes iteration and the Lord knows the world is full of problems or is that something that's in the past and there at Chelsea? I believe that your second statement is correct. If we've done it, we have to love each other to really make fine music. Some of us don't love each other right now. It'll never happen again. I can't, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a pretty optimistic person, but I don't think Crosby, Stills and Nash or Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young will ever play again together. Mm. Well, you've given us so much already. We can only be grateful for the gifts we've received and that that music, as you said, is all still there for us to listen to. Yeah. Great. Uh, let's talk about Graham Nash Live. It's such an interesting album, what you've done, going back to two early records. Uh, can we talk about that? And I hope that's what you're going to be playing on this tour that's coming up. I'm going to be playing some of them because some of those songs I've never even played before live. I decided to do it uh, at the subtle pressure of, of my darling wife, uh, Amy, Amy Grantham. Because she looked at me one day and she said, you know what? I want to see that show. I want you. I want to see you do songs for beginners to, from start to finish, and I want to see you do Wild Tales start to finish. So, my keyboard player Todd Caldwell and my guitar player Shane Fontaine put together a band of New York musicians. I'd I'd I'd, I'd only met one of them before. We rehearsed for a week, and we did four shows only. Boston, New York, South Orange, and The Egg, I think, is in Rochester somewhere. Um, I chose the best delivery of each song. And by the time I got to the end, I realized that we had a very interesting uh, uh, record here. Because apart from two small uh, mistakes that I made, uh, one on my harmonica and one on my electric piano, 
um, there's no overdubs on the record. That's exactly how it happened. And I didn't want any talking at all. I wanted, and they're in the correct order that they were on the records. I would come out, I would just say, thank you very much for coming to see us. Here's songs for beginners. And we would do that album from start to finish. I would take an intermission. I'd come back, didn't do any talking, straight into Wild Tales, start to finish. And at the end of Wild Tales, I say, good night. Those are the only words, spoken words on the record. What a great, great story. Well, we are so fortunate to still have you at the top of your game. Uh, I love that you're working with Alan, 74 years young, the two of you, your friendship going back, uh, all the way back to Northern England. And this was the privilege of a lifetime to talk to you, Graham. I can't thank you enough. Thank you very much, Matt. I appreciate it. Side. 